Okay, today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, starting from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all of the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will, be f I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am the ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Okay, good morning everybody. My name's Cam, um, and I have a little story for you. In the 1960s, a young pastor named Johannes Treyenich moved from Germany to South Africa to plant a church. But this noble goal did not go unopposed. The villa in Johannesburg where they lived and where their small new church gathered was not an accommodating place in the beginning. Something did not want them to be there. Something did not want them doing what they were doing. They frequently heard footsteps coming down the stairs and walking around on the top floor when nobody was there. The front door would swing open, even though it was locked tight. Missionaries would stay at the house um, as a bit of a waypoint on their way through. Some reported hearing loud choking noises in the middle of the night. One couple repeatedly had their bed covers ripped off of them, always at exactly 4 a.m. in the morning. And another was greeted in the night by a dark figure that loomed in their room, which they dismissed in the name of Jesus immediately. The pastor's baby would always wake up at strange times that it had never woken up at before. The child was learning a few words, but at these particular times in the night, there was only one word on their lips when they awoke crying, pray, pray. Do you find these sorts of stories a little bit creepy, a little bit otherworldly? Anyway, when all this simply became too much for Pastor Hannes and his wife, they took to an all-night prayer vigil in the room where the activity was most intense. On this night, whenever their prayers ceased, the footsteps would begin again. But as dawn approached, they dedicated the entire house and all the ministry that took place there to the Lord Jesus. A stampede, they say, charges down the stairs. And then silence. And that was the end of it. Peace from that day forward. The new church grew and worshipped in that villa for 25 years. Pastor Hannes went on to plant five more Bible teaching churches across southern Africa. 
and helped to establish a network of many more. This included the church in Namibia where Marin grew up, my wife, and he was the minister that married us in 2015. But it would have been so easy for Hannes to have been dissuaded right at the very beginning. Satan tried to put a stop to it. Tried to put a stop to their plans before they had even started. Because Satan hates that God in Jesus Christ has now intervened where once he alone exercised his dominion. Satan will not let this go unhindered. And he has a great many resources at his disposal. His forces, they don't tend to be active like in this story in our part of the world. You've probably heard something like this before. One of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. Another, perhaps equally fatal, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them. But if you believe either of those things, you're a fool. We will not withstand Satan through ignorance, but we are not helpless. Paul begins his final, this final part of his letter by exhorting us in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Over against Satan, we can access the strength and mighty power of the one true God. All the way back in the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, Paul says, that power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. But it's not a passive thing for us, and we mustn't take it for granted. And so that's why Paul brings his letter to this triumphant finale. It's a conclusion that impacts the way we read the whole thing, and it encourages, to go back, encourages us to go back and read it all again with a renewed uh, excitement. So I've broken this into three sections this morning. We have the battle, the warrior, and the head. So first, the battle. The last couple of chapters of Ephesians have been really practical. You'll recall they were tied together by the idea of walking or living. Let's review just some of this really briefly to get, just to remind ourselves of this. In chapter four, we're instructed to serve one another in humility, gentleness, and patience. And we are to be honest and hardworking, compassionate and forgiving. In chapter five, we are to be loving, morally pure and wise as we offer God praise and thanksgiving and encourage one another to do likewise. And all of our relationships are to be characterized by mutual sacrificial service. There's heaps more, but you get the picture. And alongside all of this, there's this breathtaking vision for what this is all about. Also from those chapters, we're growing up into the mature body of Christ. Our thoughts and attitudes are being renewed to be like God. We are children of light, filled with the Spirit. All of this is a wonderful picture of what it means to be Christians and what we're striving for. But there is a danger that we can think we approach all of this from, let's say, neutral territory. We can think, that while there may be more we could do and, and we can grow and strive and there's much to be gained from that and that's all rel- well and good, but if we don't, we'll be fine anyway. But the reality is not like that. Paul has hinted at it throughout his letter and now he brings it together most fully and unambiguously in verse 11. Put on the full armour of God, why? So that you can take your stand 
against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You don't wear armour in safe or neutral territory. And that's not where we are today. It's a battleground. The stakes are high. When you became a Christian, you didn't join a country club. You joined an army and a war. We must make sure we know what sort of battle we are fighting, or we won't know how to fight it. Let's break down a couple of these verses just to get a sense of it. At the head of the army, enemy army, is Satan, and all the bits that follow are components of his evil schemes. And Paul begins by telling us what the war is not like. Verse 12, it is not against flesh and blood. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't bodily and and worldly temptations or evil people and dangerous organisations and all this sort of thing. Paul talks about this sort of thing all the time. But here, in Ephesians 6, he's getting behind all of that. He, he wants to identify the forces that undergird it all and, and motivate all of that other stuff. So, the rulers and authorities and powers can be easily misread as just human rulers or human organisations. But Paul's just said, we're not talking about flesh and blood. So, he's not referring, uh, he's not referring to those sorts of things. He, he's trying to get behind it, you see. He's referring to the malicious and personal scheming of the devil. The terms rulers and authorities um, for Paul come straight from the Jewish demonology of the time, hierarchies and organisations of fallen angelic creatures. You do see hints of this sort of thing throughout Scripture. One of the good examples is Genesis 6. You see this interaction between the sons of God and then these creatures, the Nephilim and all of this, just before the flood. This stuff is never heavily emphasised, and God doesn't necessarily want us to pay all that much attention to it, but it's there, and it's real, and He does need us to acknowledge that. Next is the powers of this dark world. This is another term in common use at the time. In the pagan world, the, the world powers, the powers of this world, were the gods of their Greek and Roman pantheons. They were personal beings... Uh, who upheld the world and and orchestrated all the events within it. Again, it's easy for us to gloss over this as the superstition of an unenlightened culture. But Paul doesn't. He's not saying there was a Zeus and an Artemis and, and so forth. But he is saying that there are real forces and powers which people worshipped as Zeus and Artemis and so forth. And this sort of thing still goes on really overtly in places like Africa and certain parts of Asia and and other parts of the world. The experience of the supernatural is a daily lived experience for them. Paul reveals the true nature of all of these forces though. Darkness. They are all one more form of the devil's schemes to prevent God's intervention in Jesus. And lastly, Paul mentions the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I think this is just a concluding remark, a catch-all. He's identified a few specific examples, but he's just reiterating, there are a whole range of spiritual forces at work in this world, around us, and interacting with us physically and spiritually, and they are altogether evil. In this fallen domain, Satan's domain, 
Though the manifestations of it are very diverse, the basic posture of reality is hostile to God and his purposes. Misunderstanding this is really dangerous. We know this. Here's a stupid example. Have you ever packed for a weekend somewhere that you think is going to be warm and sunny, only to arrive during a freak cold snap? You're totally unprepared. Or far more seriously, what about this? 62-year-old Brian Kearns was a fit, healthy Chicago bloke. Brian thought COVID-19 was a hoax. After three months hooked up to a machine that was breathing for him, followed by a double lung transplant, Brian no longer believes that COVID-19 is a conspiracy. We need to know the battle we're fighting, and we need to take it seriously. So that's the battle. Point two, the warrior. We know now the sort of battle we're in. We know the danger of misunderstanding it, but how do we fight it? How do, you, how do flesh and blood humans fight a battle that is not against flesh and blood? Well, thankfully, we are not only flesh and blood. Followers of Jesus are filled with his spirit, and they are part of his body, the church. The body which has been raised from the dead by God's strength and power. The body that is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. We have access to equipment that nobody else does. In verse 11 and 13, Paul exhorts us to put on the full armour of God. It's pretty un unconventional equipment. From verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. <laughs> what on earth does any of that mean? It's really easy at this point, and I've seen, I think we've all heard and seen this happen, to get caught up in the details. What does each analogy mean? Exactly how do we use any of this stuff? But I think that misses the point. I don't think Paul wants us to get caught up in the details. He doesn't actually have any new instructions for us here. Instead, Paul is concluding and summarizing everything he's already talked about, and it's really tightly tied to everything he's already told us in the letter so far. He weaves this into this impressive picture of the soldier. Not a Roman centurion, the divine warrior. It's an image that comes through heaps of places in the Old Testament, but especially in the prophecy of Isaiah. And we've heard and said a few of those things, a few of those passages together in the service this morning. The divine warrior is the idea that God will intervene in history. He will judge the wicked and he will redeem those who turn to him in total dependence. He will fight for his people. And you know what? God has done this already. God intervened in history as the man, Jesus Christ. But he didn't fight the way anybody expected. He gave himself up to human authorities to be humiliated and executed, even though he was innocent and perfect in every way. But God the Father raised him from the dead, declaring victory. This was the fulfillment of all that prophecy. 
this was the masterstroke that nobody saw coming, especially not Satan. It has disarmed Satan completely. It has sounded the death knell of his power and influence in this world. The divine warrior has conquered. He has conquered the sin in each of us so that we can be made right with God. He has conquered all the brokenness of this world. And he has most definitely conquered Satan and the forces of evil. Through the church, which is the body of Christ, an image that Paul has laboured throughout this whole letter, the conquest of Jesus Christ is being made reality more and more with every passing day. We look forward to this becoming a total reality when Christ returns. It's, it isn't yet, of course, and that's why there is still sin and evil and brokenness, even in each one of us. For now, it is mostly a spiritual reality, but that doesn't make it uh, any less real, either the good or the bad. That is, we still experience sin in ourselves and in the world, and we still experience evil, but we also know and experience the confidence of our right standing before God and the power of His grace in our broken bodies and in this broken world. It's a bit of a paradox, but that's the nature of this age until Christ returns. So back to the passage. If you want to know how to fight a battle that is not against flesh and blood, it is by taking up your place in the body of Christ, who is our divine warrior. Let's take a whirlwind tour through the imagery. We aren't going to stop and ponder each point so much. I just want to sketch out how Paul is drawing together all of these ideas from the letter so far into this impressive picture to help us read it all in a new light. So, buckle around your waist the belt of truth. Paul talks about our belief. Chapter 1, verse 13 says, You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. Places like chapter 4, verse 4 provides more of the content of that belief. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul upholds truthfulness in our conduct. Chapter 4, verse 25, speak truthfully, putting away falsehood. With verse 29, building on this, put away unwholesome talk, which is falsehood, and speak what is helpful for building others up, which is truth. The next image, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And just a little later, take up the helmet of salvation. Both of these are straight out of of Isaiah 59. We read them together earlier. And it's an amazing prophetic passage which uh, reminds us that the divine warrior, Jesus Christ, will punish the wicked, but redeem those who repent. Our experience of this is captured in somewhere like chapter 2, verse 5. Even though we were dead in transgressions and sins, God made us alive with Christ. Paul insists then that we should put off the old self, our wicked selves, dead, and put on the new self, our redeemed selves, alive in Christ, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the helmet of salvation, put on the new self. The next one, fit your feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We used to follow the ways of this world. We were enslaved by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is Satan, the spirit 
who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is all from the first part of chapter two. Many more remain enslaved and deserving of wrath. The implication is that what we have received, others must also be offered. The mission of the church is to hold out the good news. It's a message that there is a way to be free, a way to have peace with God. When we take up our part in this mission, when we are always eager to play our part in it, we join in a frontal assault on the spiritual forces of evil. And for any that receive this message, Satan is powerless to stop them. He must simply watch, completely helpless, disarmed, as those eternal souls are redeemed from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. What can Satan do against the strength of the Lord and his mighty power? So be ready to join in this assault. The next image, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Remember, Paul is painting a picture here. It's not that faith stands out from all of these other virtues as protecting us from Satan. After all, all of these things are so closely related to one another anyway. But what might these arrows be? They are all the devil's schemes, verse 11. And earlier on, Paul makes two direct allusions to Satan's activity in the world. Uh, In chapter 4, do not let Satan gain a foothold by holding grudges that fester and corrode relationships. And in chapter 2, he makes use of the cravings and the desires and the thoughts of the flesh of our fallen bodies and minds. And his schemes include much more besides However, in chapter 3, verse 12, faith gives us direct access to God. And later on in that chapter, verse 16, Paul connects our faith to the strength and power of God. Do you see how that keeps turning up? And take up the sword of the Spirit is the last image, as Chris has helped us to remember, which is the Word of God. Now, this one alone, I think, has no clear anchor point in Ephesians. I think it's probably Paul tying off the picture of the divine warrior, who is Jesus, with a more general principle The weapon of Christ himself was the word of God. Three times he used it to fend off the temptations of Satan in the desert. And the great commission that he has given to the church is to proclaim the gospel and teach all the commandments of God. So central, so integral to all of these other images is the word of God that it's a very fitting place for Paul to round out the picture of the divine warrior. So, there you go. This is Paul's way of taking everything he's been saying so far and recasting it all with this huge new emphasis. How do we fight against Satan? How do we fight against all the forces of evil? Jesus, our warrior, fights for us. Even though the outcome is assured, this is an ongoing battle. And we are his body, the church. Paul is saying that when we listen to all of his teaching and all of his instruction and exhortation in this letter and elsewhere, when we receive these things with humble hearts as from God, and when we live into them, we are taking up our place in Christ as he finalizes his conquest of this fallen world. The imagery is lofty, but the application is really down to earth. Humility and compassion hard work and service of others, reverent submission to one another. 
the pulling down of diverse, div divisive barriers, and so forth. We can work all these things, we can work at all of these things each and every day. So much of Ephesians is just about the basic ways we relate to one another, within the church and then with the world around us. And all of this, and this is why Paul wants us to understand this as we go back and look at it all, it's not just nice ideas that we you know, generally agree are the sorts of things that good Christians should care about, it's not. It is in the realm of human interaction that the battle with the cosmic forces of evil takes place. Sometimes that's pretty mundane. Sometimes it can even be a bit messy. And yet all the time, it is the strength and mighty power of God when we live like that together in all the ways that Paul has unpacked for us for five chapters. And it's a crippling blow to the schemes of the evil one. So what can we take away from all this? Here's what I want to ask you to do. This week, reread Ephesians. It's not too long. You could do it in a sitting, but otherwise, maybe a chapter a day, something like that, is really achievable. And keep at the forefront of your mind this context from this part of chapter 6, that all of this is set against the backdrop of a cosmic battle with evil, and that Christians taking up their place in the church, the body of Christ, through their regular belief and conduct, is actually the very strength and power of God. As Paul said uh, back in verse 10, it is Christ conquering the world. And as we heard earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 19 on the screen now, that power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. These are the same forces of evil mentioned in chapter 6. So why not reread Ephesians this week, taking it all in one more time as we wrap up this series with the cosmic battle and our part in the divine warrior in mind. Okay, that's the warrior. And finally, the head. There's a final point in this passage that underscores all that we've looked at so far. Verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So we tend to know prayer is important, but what does this have to do with what we've looked at so far? How does it tie into the cosmic battle and the divine warrior? Here's a hint. From chapter 5, verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, his body. The church submits to Christ in everything. And prayer actually ties into this whole parts of the body imagery really well. None of us fight Satan as individuals. We do so as part of the body of Christ. The strength and power we receive from God is contingent on our total dependence on Jesus. And not one piece of the armour of God does anything for us on our own. We can only access this armament as we take up our place in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Have you ever seen a chicken running around with its head cut off? Um, or what about that very typical convention in movies where the overwhelming force of the baddies is distracted while you know, the team goes in and cuts the head off, so to speak, kills the, the evil mastermind and the forces scatter? Now, I'm not saying, of course, that Jesus is an evil mastermind, but you take my point, right? So, it's a total dependence on Jesus, our head, 
through which we may know God's strength and mighty power. And it's a spirit of dependence through which we can take up the armor of God in our battle with Satan and evil. And prayer is the most fundamental expression there is of total dependence. That's why Paul turns to it here as his final exhortation for the whole letter. There's some neat little tips here for prayer. How do we pray? In the Spirit, followers of Jesus are filled with His Spirit, who prompts us and guides us in prayer, and from Romans 8, even takes over the task when we want to but can't. When do we pray? On all occasions, constantly, all the time. Um, What do we pray? All kinds of prayers and requests. The sense of all of this is that it's just supposed to be natural and pervasive. We just need to be praying all the time. You can be structured and deliberate about it. I myself find prayer planners or subscribing to prayer letters from particular um, people or organisations to be really helpful. But at the same time, we don't need a formula and a timetable for a constant dependence in prayer. At least as helpful, I think, is a sort of reactionary prayer or habitual prayer that we just slowly learn and layer into our way of life, where anything and everything naturally stimulates our conversation with our Heavenly Father and our dependence on Him. Let the texture of life drive you to Him. Maren and I, uh, we have a a little resource that we found really helpful. It's this little book here called... uh, every moment holy, and it's just been so helpful in helping us to pray more freely for all sorts of things. Um, Let me just read you a few examples uh, from the contents page to show you what I mean. It's got prayers for, for daybreak, for nightfall, for domestic days, for the keeping of bees, for students and scholars, for the changing of nappies, for leaving on holidays, for sunsets, for the first hearth fire of the season. Lament upon the finishing of a beloved book, for moving into a new home, for the morning of a medical procedure, for one battling a destructive desire, for dating or courtship, before shopping, (laughs) for those who cannot sleep, for the anniversary of a loss, for the feeling of infirmities, Upon hearing birdsong, for those experiencing road rage. And on it goes. Pray on all occasions with all sorts of prayers and requests. What I've just talked about there from this book that Mara and I use, it's not the extent of prayer, and it's certainly not all that Paul has in mind here. We should absolutely be praying for big things, like God's glory and the going out of the gospel for our leaders in this nation and the big sweep of history going on all around us. But the principle here is persistent, pervasive dependence on God in prayer. And Mara and I have just found that little resource to be a great way to train our hearts, to notice and respond to the world around us and to our life um, in conversation with our Heavenly Father. The second part of the verse, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Paul invites us to extend our prayerful concern beyond our own immediate context. For this purpose, uh, Maren and I find things like the CMS prayer diary to be really useful. Um, They put them out each year and it's got prayers for um, 
every day uh, for different missionaries in different parts of the world doing different sorts of gospel ministry. Uh, that just helps us to broaden our vision and, and know it's going out there in, in God's world and in His kingdom. Um, but, you know, also, we, we need a bit of variety. Uh, we get bored of that after about six months, once we remember literally every single missionary in the whole book. We keep them in our prayers generally, but then we switch to something like the Barnabas Funds. Um, every, every month or two, they release a, a prayer diary themselves, and it has very specific prayers for very specific people or, or churches around the world uh, who are being persecuted. You know, we, in that one, we will find ourselves praying for something like the rice donation to a church in Sudan that was, um, you know, life-saving, very specific, concrete stuff, and that's really helpful. There are all sorts of resources like this uh, that can help you to uh, lift your gaze and be reminded of what God's doing in the world around us. And what's going on when we give ourselves to prayer like this? To leverage the imagery of the body one last time, my imagery now, not Paul's, Prayer might be the circulatory system of the body of Christ. Now, I don't mean by this that Christ, the head, is dependent on us, but just rather that all the parts of the body, everywhere, the church in all the earth, it needs blood. It needs prayer. And it flows from one part to the next and back again, providing life-giving oxygen. And when blood ceases to flow to a part, well, we know how bad that is. So that's it, the cosmic battle, the divine warrior, and the head who we are dependent on totally at all times in prayer. Let's pray together now. Mighty God, please give us a reality check, reminding us that we are fighting a great cosmic battle against evil each and every day. Give us an identity check reminding us that we fight this battle not on our own, but as part of the body of Christ, which is the church, and that your strength and power is made real in the world through our humble, gracious love and service of one another, which builds up the church into the very fullness of our Lord Jesus. And Father, make us to be totally and utterly dependent on him in prayer. Make us to feel as though not praying, would be like not breathing, depriving ourselves and the body of Christ everywhere of blood and of oxygen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.